0: reading short and deep hi i'm jesse and i'm eric and today we're reading short and deep the quest of the queen's tears by lord Dunsany. this was first published in a magazine called the sketch january 18th 1911 it was subsequently published in a book called the book of wonder which is a collection of Lord Dunsany stories with Sidney Syme illustrations. Now, um, I had a feeling that this was true, and I found a justification for it. Um, basically that Lord Dunsany's stories called The Book of Wonder, and there's a second Book of Wonder, I think it's called The Second Book of Wonder, were uh, not normal stories written and then illustrated by a illustrator but rather illustrated and then the author lord dunsany decided to make a story out of the image and the reason i thought that was because the stories are quite weird and the illustrations are quite weird and i've read a lot of lord dunsany but this is not something anybody ever talks about but i i I knew it to be true and then i found the quote which i will read to you uh I found Mr. Syme one day in his strange house at Worplesden complaining that editors did not offer him very suitable subjects for illustration. So I said, why not do any pictures you like and I will write stories explaining them, which may add to their mystery. (laughs) And so I do recommend everybody who's listening to this to get that PDF that we put up and have a look at that illustration and then maybe read the story. Um, The illustration, like all the ones for the book of wonder are wonderful and strange and uh, are quite different from most of his other uh, illustration work, but they're actually probably the ones he's best known for, which is kind of interesting.
1: Did you know all this, Eric? I did not until you turned me on to it. It's cool. Right. Um, it is. It it, it does happen. Um, it's, it's interesting in the modern comic book world. It is almost always um, the script writer who comes first and then the illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are many people who are both the writer and the illustrator. Sure. As in uh, the case of you know, this enormous spate of uh, current graphic memoirs. But. Um, it's not usual that it goes the other way around. And uh, it, frankly, if we have time, maybe we'll talk about this illustration and how it goes with the story or mm-hmm. how the story goes with it. But I think I think the story stands on its own as a well, we'll see. You want to tell us something a little more about Dunsany before we read the story? Sure. Or dive right in. He
0: was an Anglo-Irish lord that is born in Ireland, um, sort of trans the Irish sea, <laughs> um, lived in England a lot, um, was a chess master, sword master, story master, uh, basically he did everything and knew everyone. And he was tremendously successful during his lifetime, and he had a very long writing career. I'm excited. I think I'm going to be reading uh, the Charwoman's Daughter, which is a later novel by him. But um, yeah, he's he's an uh, endless source of in- inspiration for many fantasists, including uh, he was H.P. Lovecraft's second love after Edgar Allan Poe.
1: So mm-hmm. he's there, there are he's some special. literary historians who suggest that it is his writing that actually creates the modern genre of fantasy if you very think of fantasy arguably, as a genre rather than a mode
0: very um, arguable. Um, yeah. and and the stories from the book of wonder which this is a part of and it's a part of in a strange way before the actual physical book called the book of wonder got published they were published in ma- in a magazine called the sketch and in this case it says episode five so it was the fifth in a serialization of a, of a book that didn't exist. Um, (laughs) but when it's published later and an actual book called the book of wonder, um, it's uh, chapter eight for no reason, because they're not in any order. They're just in the order of however they'd like to curate them. And he did do some slight revisions on the, uh, later book publication.
1: I, I think it's because this began with an illustrator. If you take a five, and you continue the loop; it turns it into an eight.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> this is this is a V, so <laughs> you have to add uh, three right. three lines to
1: make it the. Oh no! I was thinking Arabic, not uh, not Roman. Yeah, uh, that's true. Three lines. Shall we do the quest of the queen's tears? I would
0: love for you to read the quest of the queen's tears to me,
1: Sylvia queen of the woods, in her woodland palace, held court and made a mockery of her suitors. She would sing to them, she said, she would give them banquets, she would tell them tales of legendary days, her jugglers should caper before them, her army salute them, her fools crack jokes with them and make whimsical quips, only she could not love them. This was not the way, they said, to treat princes in their splendor and mysterious troubadours, concealing kingly names. It was not in accordance with fable. Myth had no precedence for it. She should have thrown her glove, they said, into some lion's den. She should have asked for a score of heads of the serpents of Lakantara, or demanded the death of any notable dragon, or sent them all upon some deadly quest, but that she could not love them? It was unheard of. It had no parallel in the annals of romance. And then she said that if they must needs have a quest, she would offer her hand to him who first should move her to tears. And the quest should be called for reference in histories or song, the quest of the queen's tears. And he that achieved them, she would wed, be he only a petty duke of lands unknown to romance. And many were moved to anger, for they hoped for some bloody quest. But the old Lord's Chamberlain said, as they muttered among themselves in a far dark end of the chamber, that the quest was hard and wise, for that if she could ever weep, she might also love they had known her all her childhood. She had never sighed. Many men had seen her, suitors and courtiers, and had never turned her head after one went by. Her beauty was as still sunsets of bitter evenings when all the world is frore, a wonder and a chill. She was as a sun-stricken mountain uplifted alone, all beautiful with ice a desolate and lonely radiance late at evening, far up beyond the comfortable world, not quite to be companioned by the stars, the doom of the mountaineer. If she could weep, they said, she could love, they said. And she smiled pleasantly on those ardent princes and troubadours concealing kingly names. Then one by one they told each suitor prince the story of his love with outstretched hands and kneeling on the knee, and very sorry and pitiful were the tales, so that often up in the galleries some maid of the palace wept and very graciously she nodded her head like a listless magnolia in the deeps of the night moving idly to all the breezes its glorious bloom And when the princes had told their desperate loves and had departed away with no other spoil than of their own tears, only even then there came the unknown troubadours and told their tales in song, concealing their gracious names. And one there was, Acronion. Clothed with rags, and underneath the rags was war-scarred armor, and when he stroked his harp and sang his song in gallery above gallery, maidens wept, and even the old lord's chamberlain whimpered among themselves, and thereafter laughed through their tears and said, It is easy to make old people weep and to bring idle tears from lazy girls, but he will not set a weeping, the queen of the woods." And graciously she nodded, and he was the last, and disconsolate went away those dukes and princes and troubadours in disguise. Yet a cronian pondered as he went away. King was he. Of a Pharma Lul and Hof, overlord of Zarura and Hilly Chang, and Duke of the Dukedoms of Molong and Melash, none of them unfamiliar with romance or unknown or overlooked in the making of myth, he pondered as he went in his thin disguise. Nigh by those who do not remember their childhood, having other things to do, be it understood that underneath Fairyland, which is, as all men know, at the edge of the world. There dwelleth the gladsome beast, a synonym he for joy. It is known how the lark in his zenith, children at play out of doors, good witches and jolly old parents have all been compared, and how aptly with this very same gladsome beast. Only one crab he has, if I may use slang for a moment to make myself perfectly clear. Only one drawback. And that is that in the gladness of his heart, he spoils the cabbages of the old man who looks after fairyland. And, of course, he eats men. It must be further understood that whoever may obtain the tears of the gladsome beast in a bowl and become drunken upon them may move all persons to shed tears of joy. So a Kronian went to Arath, a knight at arms of his spear guard, and together they set out through the fields of fable until they came to fairyland, a kingdom sunning itself, as all men know, for leagues along the edges of the world. And by a strange old pathway, they came to the land they sought through a wind blowing up the pathway sheer from space. Even so, they came to the windy house of thatch where dwells the old man who looks after fairyland, sitting by parlor windows that look away from the world. He made them welcome in his starward parlor, telling them tales of space. And when they named to him their perilous quest, He said it would be a charity to kill the gladsome beast, for he was clearly one of those that liked not its happy ways. And taking them into his garden, wherein his cabbages were, he pointed them out the way to the place he called Underneath, where the gladsome beast had his lair. Then the old man who looks after Fairyland went back to his windy house, muttering angrily as he passed his cabbages, for he did not love the ways of the gladsome beast, and the two friends parted on their separate ways. Nothing perceived them but that ominous crow, glutted over long already upon the flesh of man. The wind blew bleak from the stars. As an Akronian, Neared the lair of the gladsome beast and heard its continuous chuckles, he feared that its mirth might be insuperable, not to be saddened by the most grievous song. Nevertheless, he stood and struck up the chant called Dolorous. It told of desolate, regretted things befallen happy cities long since in the prime of the world. It told of how the gods and beasts and men had long ago loved beautiful companions, and long ago in vain. It told of the golden host of happy hopes, but not of their achieving. It told how love scorned death, but told of death's laughter. The contented chuckles of the gladsome beast suddenly ceased in his lair. He rose and shook himself. He was still unhappy. Acronian still sang on the chaunt called Dolorous. The gladsome beast came mournfully up to him. Acronian ceased not for the sake of his panic, but still sang on. He sang of the malignity of time. Two tears welled large in the eyes of the gladsome beast. Acronian moved the agate bowl to a suitable spot with his foot. He sang of autumn and of passing away then the beast wept as the frore hills weep in the thaw and the tears splashed big into the agate bowl Acronian desperately chaunted on he told of the glad unnoticed things men see and do not see again of sunlight beheld unheeded on faces now withered away the bowl was full the beast was ceasing to weep Acronian was desperate he felt as a morsel he sang of worlds that had disappointed the gods and all of a sudden crash and the staunch spear of wrath went home behind the shoulder and the tears and the joyful ways of the gladsome beast were ended and over forever. And carefully they carried the bowl of tears away, leaving the body of the gladsome beast as a change of diet for the ominous crow. And going by the windy house of Thatch, they said farewell to the old man who looks after fairyland, who, when he heard of the deed, rubbed his large hands together and mumbled again and again, And a very good thing, too, my cabbages, my cabbages. And not long after, a cronian sang again in the sylvan palace of the Queen of the Woods, having first drunk All the tears in his agate bowl, and it was a Gala night, and all the court were there, and ambassadors from the lands of legend and myth, and even some from terra cognita. And Acronian sang as he never sang before, and will not sing again. Oh, but dolorous, dolorous are all the ways of men, few and fierce are his days, and the end trouble and vain vain his endeavor and woman who shall tell of it her doom is written with man's by listless careless gods with their faces to other spheres but all the trouble in the beauty of a song may not be set down by me there was much gladness in it and all mingled with grief it was like the way of man it was like our destiny Sobs arose at his song, sighs came back along echoes. Seneschal soldiers sobbed, and a clear cry made the maidens. Like rain, the tears came down from gallery to gallery. All round the queen of the woods was a storm of sobbing and sorrow. But no, she would not weep. The
0: end. Um, I I I can see how he got the story from the image. It's all there, um, but it's also uh, it, it, his story is so good. I I really I love Lord Dunsany. One of the things I like about this story is that it's sort of a retelling of a, of other stories we've seen, Arthurian quests sort of stories. Um, It has a twist ending, of course, Um, and it also it's a little bit um, like a story we did on this podcast called um, King Thrushbeard uh, Brothers Grimm story. I think it was Mm -hmm. um, which has a disguised king coming back to court a woman who refused him in the first place. Um, But unlike in that case where he taught her humility here, he can't teach her anything at least enough to cry, because if she can't right. cry, she can't love. And um, I also really, really dig the pairing of the idea of cabbages. I think it's paired in the story. Cabbages and crabbiness. <laughs> <laughs> because I like cabbages. Um, I don't think of myself as crabby, but if I was going to describe a vegetable that was crabby, I think a cabbage would probably be it. Or a parsnip or something like that. <laughs>
1: Well, it used to be um, it, it, certainly in France. Um, there was the notion, you know, the, like, you know, the stork brings babies. Sure. Um, there used to be this notion that babies were found in the cabbages. Sure. And in fact, a French term of endearment for a little child is. Chouchou. Exactly. So um, the fact that the gladsome Beast makes the cabbages go bad. Mm. Suggests something about the, uh, the the problem of hope. That is, when you feel joy, it's only a matter of time, and that's what, in fact, the the an acron- um, sings of the the inevitability of the ravages of time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he thinks that he can perhaps get her to cry because he is a mm-hmm. he, he is timeless. But, of course, that he is timeless means that he is not truly involved in the lives of men, nor is she. She is in metaphoric terms and also in the terms in which people understand sexuality, frigid. Hmm. Yeah, she's the ice queen, even though she's Sylvia, queen of the woods. Jesse, when we began, you said that the illustration clearly promulgated, inspired the story. And I have to say that when I first read the story, I didn't find that. But with your prompting, I've looked at it again and... I think it's rather amazing. I wonder if you could talk about the elements that are in the the illustration. Well, it's not an illustration of anything. The elements that are in <laughs> Syme's original work that somehow or other uh, Dunsany managed to weave into one mm. quite well integrated story. Yeah, it's uh, looking at it the... the
0: this is a task I give to my students. Um, this is probably why I knew that there was something that was up, because I do it myself. I give the students an image, and then I say, write me a story using some set of vocabulary and this image. And anything that is not in the picture that's in the story, uh, well, they have to match somehow, right? And there are things in this picture that absolutely match. I wouldn't have named that creature the gladsome beast, But in weaving the story, Lord Dunsany has illustrated it as such, even though it's not happy in this picture. Um, There are are cabbages in the image, which, you know, he's woven into it. There's a forest, although it looks more like an orchard there. Um, There's uh, our main character uh, singing his song to this dolorous song to this beast and he's got the agate bowl although that's not what agate looks like to me but I don't know agate he knows agate better than I and (laughs) in off to the right there's a, a guy with a spear sneaking up on the gladsome beast so inevitably it had to be the case that in the edge of the world in the underworld the past fairyland as all men know this story was created in combination of two things Syme and Dunsany. only thing that's left out of the story as far as I'm concerned um is there appears to be some eggs in a little nest on the edge just above the gladsome beast and though the crow is mentioned and it looks very uh scary <laughs> as it's been <laughs> eating men men meat for so long um i th- I thought are those eggs it's babies, and if so. How come they don't hatch out in this story? Or maybe they do.
1: Hmm. The the story says that the crow now has something else to feed on Mm -hmm. than men. It has to feed on the body of the gladsome beast.
0: The thing that brought it all its food in the first place.
1: Indeed. So, death and time... Seem inevitably entwined, but joy, gladness, and sorrow seem inevitably entwined. There is the, uh, the 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 ambiguity of the word tears. When you first read the title, it's the it's the quest of the Queen of Tears, um, and I don't think of joyful tears, but that's the very first reference we get to tears in the story as I look at the illustration uh, the crow is standing at uh, standing on the top of a cliff the cliff as I imagine a a view into the underworld which is the underneath which mm-hmm. is where uh, fairyland exists we see the thatched house of the old man who looks at fairyland looks after fairyland and is it just my way of looking at it Jesse but It seems to me that coming around counterclockwise from where that crow is, the vertical of the cliff under which the Gladson beast is uh, coming forth um, looks like the face of another beast. Hmm. It looks like it has an eye. It looks like it has a nearly vertical uh, cleft that might be the bridge of a nose mm. it looks to me as if the very land that's split open above the gladsome beast is an enlarged mirror image of the gladsome beast mm. and I I can't help but wonder if uh, that, that eye thing, you see the white spot I'm talking of mm-hmm. um, that there's a discoloration under it, maybe those tears of joy have always discolored the world because ultimately there is time. Mm-hmm. What could kill the beast is timelessness. Acronian. And the only way that you can do that apparently is by a spear will wielded by a wrath. That is someone without anger. Because to be angry means to be caught up in the emotions, to be caught up in the human effects. And in fact, it is the inhumanity of the queen, her frigidity, her removal, her verticality. She's she's compared to the ice at the top of a distant mountain peak. Um, if you're removed from humanity, then you can do something um, and you can, in fact, destroy the human which includes the tears of anger and the tears of joy. So the gladsome beast, who is, in fact, uh, crying, as we see in the illustration, well, in the picture, um, th- there's something doleful mm-hmm. about the eyes of that beast. I I think those are tears of sadness, oh, yeah. not of joy. Uh, and perhaps that's why the gladsome beast... Uh, is always ruining the cabbages because we are seduced by hope and joy into a world that, uh, that ultimately time will destroy. Um, This story is, it, it assumes the worlds of myth and fairy tale. Mm -hmm. As all men know. As all men know, as all men know. And, its, its wisdom, such as it has it, wisdom, its, its meaning, such as we take meaning from it, should be apparent even in terra cognita. <laughs> is in the known world mm-hmm. where we live. But, you know, when you read fairy tales, um, I'm not talking about myth now. Myths often have things go awry. Oedipus comes to a very inconvenient end. But um, in fairy tales, the protagonist always makes it. You know, when you think of a, a princess, in this case a, a queen, who will have none of the possible suitors, you think of uh, Atalanta. Uh, mm-hmm. Saying she will marry none of them, and then uh, the, the the runner picks up the golden apples of the Hesperides and presents them to her, and and beats her in the the foot race mm-hmm. because she can't outrun him, and she manages to to wind up with the suitor in the the frog prince. The frog retrieves her golden ball from the well, and though she doesn't want to at first, she when he when he is transformed into a handsome prince mm-hmm. she accedes to the desire to be with him in other words in fairy tales the quest is achieved and that leads to intimacy which of course ultimately leads to happiness and procreation which leads to which joy ultimately leads and sadness. to joy <laughs> and then death exactly and then death and what we have here is, something that fully acknowledges those worlds and won't play. If you can make me weep, sure. Make me weep. Then I'll do it. But she knows she will not weep. The, the meaning of this story, at least a first-level meaning of the story, seems to be if you are not willing to have your heart broken, You'll never fall in love. mm-hmm. I'm in uh, love
0: with this this style of storytelling. I know this story is imperfect and I think the imperfections are because it's it's like a it's like so restricted and so constricted by the requirements that Lord Dunsany has put on himself, including page length. like this all fits on one page and mm-hmm. uh, like him having a story where on the right hand side you see the image the left hand side is the is the story it all has to fit on there he has only he has to include everything in the image and he's practically included everything there's only one or two things in in the picture that are not mentioned and it all makes sense oh i love this stuff
1: it really it really does and it makes us I think re-examine our own sources of joy. Mm-hmm. Should we should we take fairy tales as a source of joy? If we do, it's because they are timeless, because Akronian is successful in fairy tales, but in Terra Cognita, when they leak over there, they stop being able to to give us what we want but we still want it having read this
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which is why there's always more to say
0: thanks very much for listening and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep if you enjoyed this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.